Cheryl Wheeler. She wrote this song in 1998 after the Jonesboro Massacre. It got a lot of airplay a year later after Columbine. Cheryl Wheeler, if it were up to me, I'd take away the guns. It, It just is madness. And the madness has got to stop. I, I just don't know how we get past this. What is wrong with this country? It's this country. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Yeah, there are shootings occasionally. You know, it, it, those happen, one-offs. But we have an epidemic in this country. And it's killing us. It's literally killing us. So eight people dead, eight people killed at a San Jose rail yard by a gunman who then killed himself. So this is what we know so far. The gunman was an employee at the, at the Valley Transportation Authority in San Jose. And that's about all we know. He was an employee who apparently set his own home on fire and then went killed eight people and himself. His father, his father is 88 years old, I guess also lives in the area. He told the Daily Beast that his son, quote, seemed completely himself in recent days. Didn't appear to be holding a grudge. I don't know what the grudge would be for. There's not a whole lot of detail here. Um, But the father said, I just found out he was dead and his house on fire and all that just a minute ago. So, Another day in America. Yeah. You know, this is, this is our life. Got to tell you, I'm, I'm guest hosting the broadcast this week. I forgot to tell you yesterday. Um, Brad and Desi, their landlord is doing um, massive construction work outside of their studio, like tearing up the sidewalk and the hillside. And so it's the sound of jackhammers in their studio. So they can't do a show. So I had something else online, you know, in, in mind for today, um, for Brad's show, but I scrapped that once the news broke and what, what you'll hear tonight on the broadcast, if you listen, is an interview I did a few weeks ago with, with, with Igor Volsky. And I hesitate before I say Igor only because it's, um, 
it's Mel Brooks' fault. Because I'm a huge fan of Young Frankenstein. And when I see the name spelled I-G-O-R, before I ever saw Young Frankenstein, I would say it's Igor. But now I have Igor ingrained in my brain. So every t- if you hear the interview, if you hear me like take a beat, I'm going in my mind. Is it Igor or Igor? It's Igor. Uh, so it screws me up every time. So <laughs> anyway, Igor Volsky was on the show. It was just a few weeks ago because we, we had a spate of shootings all of a sudden. It seemed like it was every day there was another mass killing. So I oh, you're not here? Why are you not hearing? Somebody's not hearing anything. Um, Pisces. Oh, shit. I never. I didn't start. Um, I didn't start YouTube. You know, it's always something. YouTube, I'll be there in a second. <laughs> uh, here we are. Sorry, YouTube. You know, I look over and I'm seeing people say, I'm not hearing anything. Or is it live? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I totally forgot. Well, you guys missed. What YouTube missed was um, the, the traditional airing of Cheryl Wheeler's If It Were Up To Me. Uh, I'm here. Sorry, everybody. It's coming. Uh, give me a second. Give me a second. Sorry, we, we are live. I, I just, I screwed that up. Uh, we should be kicking in live on YouTube any second now. It's coming. I promise you. In a moment. Um, yeah, my, my mistake. All right. Anyway, so I, I apologize to the YouTubers. You know how the show started. It started with Cheryl Wheeler's If It Were Up To Me. I explained that I'm that I'm filling in for the broadcast uh, this week because they have construction going on outside their studio. Sorry, I'm going to let you know what you missed. I, I screwed up. Um, and um, and uh, that I scrapped my original plans for Brad's show tonight because of the shooting. And I have Igor Volsky coming on. <laughs> in, in an interview for you, we did a few weeks ago. And then I explained why I always pause before I say Igor Volsky's name. Because in my mind, I've got to think it through. Is it Igor or Igor? And I blame Mel Brooks. Because young Frankenstein Stein, uh, introduced us to Igor, and now I I I, I screw it up I, in my mind. It's like, oh, oh, is it Igor or Igor? And I have to take that beat before I say the name. So anyway, I'm back. Sorry about that uh, YouTube operator error. Started everything else. Forgot to start um, YouTube. Here's the problem: when I do Brad's show, you know, it's easy to do a live show like this because when Five o'clock Eastern hits, whether I'm ready or not, we go live. And so, um, (laughs) and so, um, yeah, and so there's a show and whatever happens for the next hour or so is the show. I'm prepared. I have everything ready. But with Brad's show, because it's pre-recorded, they don't do a live show. It's got to be pieced together and you strive for perfection and it takes forever. So I'm doing, you know, on these days when I fill in for him, I'm, I'm sort of juggling two shows at the same time. And I forget what I did on what show, uh, just know Brad's show today is all about the guns and yeah. So we do see, uh, still no sound for Kim. Kim, you should have sound. Does anybody else have sound? You should all hear have sound because I'm back on and it's working now. I just, I, you know, I forgot to start the stream before. Um, so and Kim's Kim's audio is gone. Kim, don't you just just reload or something because we should be there. And if you still don't have sound, you can listen to the audio at NicoleSandlerStream.com or ProgressiveVoices.com or you know go to NicoleSandler.com slash listen dash live and there's my uh, tune in player there as well. All right, I'm I'm stalling. Um, there's there there's there's stuff going on. So. Um, sound is good. Okay, everyone, it's just Kim who doesn't have sound. So somebody help Kim and and you'll be good. Um, the world is mad. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm going crazy, but I know it's not me. It's the world around us. And I'm, I, I, I could go in so many different directions right now. Let me tell you who our guest is going to be. Our get, you know, I get pitched on a lot of books and honestly, I don't have time to read most of them. And I'll be honest with you that today's book I did not read, but the, Larry King never read a book either. He, he famously didn't read the books. He, I, I thought it was just a really good way to 
wriggle out of reading books that he didn't want to read. It's like, no, I like to just ask questions and find out that, you know, I'm, I'm more um, calculated than that. I do my research. I don't always get to read the whole book. Sometimes I just read the first couple of chapters or a few pages and I do research into the authors. Anyway, today the book is, um, uh, it's not our typical subject matter. But I was fascinated by this because, frankly, you know, I do one of my guilty pleasures is I watch television and I do like crime shows. I mean, I, I particularly liked the show Dexter. Did you ever watch Dexter on Showtime? Um, it's now available every. I mean, if you have Hulu, you can see it and you should because Dexter's coming back. I saw the promo last night for the first time and there's Dexter in his log cabin where he escaped to after he almost got caught at the end of the series. Um, Dexter, in case you don't know, was a, was a mass murderer. He was a, he was a serial killer with a conscience. He would only, he, he worked in the Miami crime lab as a blood spatter expert. And he would kill people who he knew were guilty, but somehow, got away with the crime. So because he was a blood spatter expert, he could solve the crimes that the Miami Police Department couldn't. And then he would go after the bad, the really bad guys. I mean, he didn't take out anybody who was a good person, only the really evil people. So, I, you know, I like those kind of shows. I watch Law & Order. Well, I should say I fall asleep to Law & Order. Um, so I've seen them all. I've seen Law and Order, SUV. I know it's SVU, but I call it SUV. I, I, so here's the thing. The, um, yeah, so the new Lex, Dexter is coming back on. So I am intrigued by forensics, right? And like perhaps you were, I was kind of glued to the TV last month during the Derek Chauvin murder trial where all those forensic experts were. And and I, I I should have pulled the doctor's name. And if I weren't doing double duty this week, I would have. I would have pulled audio from him. But you're t- I'm talking about the the one expert for the prosecution who who told you, walked you through frame by frame the video of, you know, it's a snuff film is what we saw, of George Floyd being killed by Derek Chauvin. And he, and he was so... Good. Somebody in the chat room, find his name and tell me what it is. Um, that, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in. But I do know that there are many crime scene experts, CSI units who make mistakes. Um, anyway, so the book, I get a pitch. I get, I get at least three or four book pitches a day it seems. So it may seem like I interview a lot of authors. I only interview the ones I want to interview. This one intrigued me. It's by Brandon L. Garrett, who happens to be um, a professor of law at Duke University, where he directs the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. He's written a number of other books on the subject, and this one's called Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. Dr. Tobin, thank you. Dr. Tobin was that expert witness. And yes, it was fascinating. And I trust him, right? Because that's that's the job. You you want to trust them. There were some other witnesses, mostly called by the defense lawyer, who I didn't trust so much, right? They just seemed like hacks. And so um actually, uh this this book is interesting because the premise is basically that um, a lot of mistakes happen in these crime labs that we think the science of forensic is is settled, like it's, you know, cut and dry. DNA evidence? You can't screw with that. Fingerprint evidence? Well, he says, not so fast, buddy. So we'll talk to him. We'll talk to him about and, and what all I could think of, you know, is uh, when I heard about it, I'm thinking, and I heard about the shooting today, and I'm thinking... You know, thankfully, the shooter killed himself, so we don't have to deal with prosecuting him, with, um, uh, you know, it, finding him. I, you know, there, is, uh, there are mass shooters who open fire and get away. 
And my first question for him might be, can we easily catch the perpetrators of these crimes? And um, anyway, so that that's the premise of today's interview. Sometimes we have to get away from politics. And frankly, the politics are making me crazy. Whether it is domestic politics here in the U.S. where, God damn it, Joe Biden? Okay, the honeymoon, I guess, is over because he did it. Um, it it's in today's What's News. And, and um, uh, I want to find exactly... Um, how I worded it because I don't I don't want to screw it up. I hate paraphrasing things because I, I get things wrong, and especially when my mind's uh, torn between two different shows. But here's here's the thing. To, oh, because I'm filling in for broadcast tonight. I got to I got to remember to tell the people in in the YouTube room because they didn't hear the beginning of the show. So I'm doing double duty this week. Um, so anyway, uh, what Joe Biden, you know. I, I say it ain't so, Joe. Come on, man. Come on, man. Let me just read you the story. The White House has reportedly removed several key per, per, provisions from the administration's upcoming budget plan. One of the things they removed? The student debt forgiveness proposal. Now, progressives wanted a $50,000 of student loan forgiveness. Joe Biden compromised and said, well, maybe we'll go for 10. And, you know, he wasn't convinced on that, but he said that. And then just, I don't know, after that, in the ensuing time between then and now, there was a a few stories that I heard of, that I heard about, in which it sounded like Biden was giving in and he was going to go for the full $50,000 debt forgiveness. And then I read this story. It was actually late last night I read it. Uh, one of the things, well, it, it d- didn't keep me awake at night because of my own situation, because thankfully I don't have student loan debt. <laughs> Small favors. Um, but just the fact that he's going back on his word. The Washington Post reported on Friday that the White House has also removed several proposals that Joe Biden had promised to address on the campaign trail, like reducing the cost of prescription drugs and raising the estate tax. But the student loan, the student loan debt forgiveness, this is a big one, a big one. Um, So, Reading on the story, and I I don't even know where I got this from, progressives have been especially frustrated with Biden for having discussed but not followed through on the prospect of forgiving student loans for months. The left began advocating for Biden to cancel student uh, student debt weeks before, this says weeks before his presidency started. They've been fighting for this for years. But despite making some moves indicated he might do so, Biden is now stepping back previous pledges in the matter. Come on, man. That's not okay. That's not okay. I know I, I may have overused this analogy, but I like it. It works for me. The new <laughs> the new administration smell is wearing off. And what's what's taking its place is the shit that you track in on your shoes and that then you walk in and it smells like Trump, if you know what I mean. Ugh. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, see, it, and it's shit like that that makes me want to tune out and watch Dexter or watch a soap opera or watch Law and Order, <laughs> whatever it may be, to get my mind off of politics in the real world, which is getting more and more batshit crazy by the day. Let me share with you another story. So, um, a couple of months ago, was if even that long ago, I had on this program the Secretary of State of the State of Arizona. Her name is, um, uh, uh, damn, I'm drawing a blank on her name, um, uh, uh, Katie Hobbs, Katie Hobbs, Secretary of State of Arizona. And her main role as Secretary of State is overseeing the elections and making sure that they run smoothly. Right? Right. Well, and uh, damn it, I closed out this window. Did I really? Um, I'm going to have to pull this up here for you because this is, this is mind-blowing. So um, the Arizona 
Senate Republican. Well, the Republicans run the state legislature. The Arizona Senate stripped Katie Hobbs of her duties as Secretary of State of overseeing elections. Stripped her of those duties, um, put them all on the Attorney General, who, of course, is a Republican, who will do their bidding. By the way, the stripping of those responsibilities from the Secretary of State in the state of Arizona expires along with her term on January 2nd, 2023. This is, this is you know, and here I'm thinking, oh, Arizona might be a cool place to go because it's turning blue. Arizona is batshit crazy. I don't know what color they are, but they're batshit crazy. So... Um, they, they, they strip her of her, uh, role of, of her duties overseeing elections. Right. And, um, with no rhyme or reason there, they just don't, because she's a, she's a Democrat and she's questioning their fraud it. So on, um, uh, CNN apparently, so the, the president of the Senate of the Arizona Senate Republicans is a woman named Karen Fan. And Karen Fan apparently had been ducking CNN's interviews for for the longest time. They were trying to interview her about the fraud it and all that. Well, now they have a video. Uh, apparently a reporter at CNN named Kyung La caught up with Karen Fan, basically ambushed her in the parking lot, <laughs> is what it seems. And, well... Um, I just have to play this for you because it's it's astounding. So this, listen to this interview. And uh, yes, they are batshit crazy. They are all batshit crazy. I don't know what's legit, what isn't legit, but why wouldn't we want to answer those questions? Do we just questioning democracy? No, I'm questioning the integrity of the election system, which is the backbone of democracy. That's right. Which means we should have full 100% confidence in our democracy and in our election system. Yeah, we should. But you're talking about trying to disprove conspiracies. If I have to, yes. Why wouldn't we? If somebody says a, a, a something is out there, I would love to be able to say, that's not true, guys. Aren't you raising more <laughs> questions by giving rise to these conspiracy theories? No. I'm answering questions. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. Are you 100% confident that every vote that came in in Arizona or any other state, are you, can you say emphatically 100% that no uh, dead people voted? that ballots weren't filled out by other people, that the chain of custody from the minute people uh, voted their ballots, Uh that the chain of custody was accurate and and on target the entire time. Can you tell me that? I can say that what the data shows us is that there was no no, widespread fraud. I I didn't say there was fraud. But you just said chain of custody. Yeah, Yeah. chain of custody. Dead people. These things are all fraud. Well, I've asked you a question. Uh Can you honestly tell me in all the states that no ballots from people that are already deceased were not filled out and sent in. I can tell you that what the data has shown overwhelmingly is that election, this was most, the most secure election in American history. Okay, but you can't answer that question either, can you? I, I'm, I'm answering it. I'm telling you. No, that you're telling me what the data says. I oh, my asked, God, this woman is nuts. We should be driven by. First of all, when we talk about transparency, from day one, the entire process has been live streaming. So anybody... On OAN. On OAN. With <laughs> cameras controlled by OAN. Are you saying that OAN is not a credible uh, news, news yes! source? Are you saying yes! that? Okay, I'll remember that. <laughs> CNN is saying that OAN is not a yes. credible one. Yes, CNN is okay. saying well, that OAN is not credible. We are paying oh for God. some of the security and we are paying for the cost of the Coliseum. Oh well, God. we're paying for our fair share. Anything over uh-huh. and above that um, I, I don't is know. being covered by others. I do not know who they are, but I, I know from the get-go there was a lot of grassroots uh-huh. people. Grassroots um, I have people. been told that there are people sending in $10, $50 checks, $100, because they want to see this on it done. Do you believe this is helping democracy? Oh Absolutely. God. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Will you do this every election? It will be a, a less in democracy <laughs> that we answer people's questions and I want the people uh, I don't care if you're in Arizona or any oh, state really? across the nation sure. if we have those kind of doubts we owe it to them really? to answer their question this sure. will be the basis of a gold standard 
Oh, my God. All right, just listen to this. What a report by our Kyung Law with all of those questions and catching up with Karen Fan, who's very much behind this bogus audit in Arizona. But, I mean, she's like a walking infomercial for conspiracy theory news. She's a walking infomercial for conspiracy theory news. Are you telling me that OAN is not credible? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. All right. So um, <laughs> the, the crazy cuts deep, right? Wow. And by the way, you know, the people on the left, myself included, have raised questions. Brad Friedman, I mean, this is the crux of a lot of his investigative work, is on election integrity. We've been raising red flags for years. The reason why this election was so secure and good is because so many people use paper ballots. There's a backup, hand-counted paper ballots or machine-counted paper ballots that then when they were audited, when they were spot-checked, were accurate. She's nuts, that woman. And so while, while Democrats were screaming um, problems here, they didn't want to know from it. But you have a carnival barker, con man, the orange one, the former guy, who says, the election was stolen. If I lose, it means it was stolen. He said that in 2016, too. When he didn't lose, you never heard it again. But he just put it in a drawer and brought back Stop the Steal four years later. He had that ready to go in 2016, thinking he was going to lose. It is opposite world. It is opposite world. It's astounding. Um, But um, (laughs) I'm jumping around, and my, my mic thing came unglued and I can't unscrew it. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm doing a Randy Rhodes today and doing the handheld mic thing, unless I can somehow figure out how to get this fixed uh, while we're talking. Only people who are watching on video know this. If you're listening to the audio feed, hopefully you have no idea that I'm sitting here unscrewing uh, my mic boom. Anyway, um, there's one other story that I want to play for you that is just, it's awesome. It really is awesome. Um, and, and I hinted at, uh, yesterday I saw that it looked like Jeff Bezos was going to buy MGM, the movie studio. And, and today it is official. Uh, it came over the wire this morning. Um, Jeff Bezos purchasing MGM. Let me see if I can't um, find this whole story. Uh, I, come to, I come here with so much stuff, and because I'm conscious about the environment, I don't print out 20 pages a day. So I have it all in a document on my desktop that I scroll through and there sometimes I just can't find what I'm looking for. So I apologize for that. Um, and I don't see it, but basically what it is, is, um, uh, Jeff Bezos this morning agreed to a deal to purchase MGM, MGM Holdings, which is the parent company of the MGM movie studio. So that means all those films, um, all those franchises, and I'm, you know, use your imagination, but it's not only movies. There are TV shows in that treasure trove as well. So um, <laughs> Stephen Colbert had an interesting theory last night on why Jeff Bezos would pay almost double the value of MGM. People, they had the powers that be had it valued at around $5 billion. Jeff Bezos is paying almost $10 billion for it. Stephen Colbert, explain why, please. And Bezos really wants MGM because he's dropping that $9 billion on it, even though insiders believe the studio is only worth about $5 billion. Uh-oh. Jeff, that's way too much. Didn't you check on the right hand side of the product page? You could have bought it used from other sellers. (laughs) So why would one of the world's richest men pay almost twice the value for a struggling movie studio that recently went bankrupt? Well, it could be that Jeff Bezos has an ongoing feud with the former president, Genghis Khan. (laughs) Guess what? All the outtakes from The Apprentice are owned by MGM. Holy mother of DVD extras. The private footage of a TV billionaire is going to belong to an actual billionaire. You see, for years, 
there have been allegations about outtakes from The Apprentice, oh, yeah. where the slob father uses <laughs> racist language, including by actor Tom Arnold, who says he saw it personally. I've seen a compilation tape that my buddy shared where he says the N-word, and he says he calls Eric uh, the, uh, uh, the R-word. It was him sitting in that chair saying the N-word, saying the C-word. He says this is Tom every Arnold. bad thing ever, every dirty, every offensive, racist thing ever. So, on brand, and if this is true, someday soon, Bezos may release the most racist thing in the MGM catalog. Other than Gone with the Wind. Because <laughs> these tapes have never been made public. But now, Mount Flushmore's arch nemesis owns it all. And I am here for it. Bezos could release it all on Amazon Prime as the follow-up to Fleabag. D-bag. <laughs> the follow-up to Fleabag. D-bag. Fleabag was an Amazon streaming show, in case, in case you weren't aware. And... Um, that that won all these Emmys. I mean, nobody heard of it because it was on Amazon, but it won all those Emmys. But I think Stephen Colbert is really onto something here because, um, yeah, maybe that is why Jeff Bezos paid all that money for MGM to get the Apprentice outtakes. And wouldn't that be a lovely thing? All right, just throwing that out there. All right, I see our guest has joined us. And uh, so I'm very happy to welcome to the show uh, Brandon L. Garrett. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, so you are the L. Neil Williams Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law. That's that's pretty impressive. Um, you direct the Wilson Center for Science and Justice there. Um, so I'm guessing the books that you've written have to do with your area of expertise in the law. And the new book is oh, called oh. Autopsy yeah. of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaw in Forensics. So this is not my usual... Um, topic but we usually talk politics here but it's nice to get away from politics for a while it's it's important i think for our mental health i don't know that exposing the flaws in our um law enforcement uh forensic system is going to be less stress inducing but let's do it anyway um so the premise of your book is uh that there are flaws in forensics that so are you telling me that the the crime labs i see on television like on csi which is all about the crime lab is not accurate that's what i'm telling you and you know you, you kind of get that even just from the first few pages of the book mm -hmm. that uh, there's one way that those media depictions of crime labs are accurate which is that both in fictional depictions and actually what a lot of forensic examiners have been saying in court for years, they say that they can find a person. Uh, sorry, oh. I just knocked over a water bottle. They say that they can find a perfect match. They, they would say in the past that they were 100% certain. Right. No, no other gun, no other fingerprint, no other hair in the world could have come from someone else. Um, and, and that was false. There was no research to support it. On the shows, it's like an instant 100% match. In real life, it's tedious work. Labs are backlogged. They're not wearing glamorous clothes. But both on the shows and in courtrooms, they were saying this exaggerated stuff that wasn't supported by science and still is not to this day. Wow. So, but there's a little bit of crossover because just a, a month or so ago, much of the nation was glued to the television for the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. And there were forensic scientists there. And I'm not sure if the, that's the right term to describe, for instance, who I thought was the most credible of those witnesses, Dr. Tobin, who took us frame by frame through the, basically the snuff film that we saw George Floyd being murdered and said, that's the moment that the life went from his body. Um, he was an effective witness. Do you think he was accurate or do you think it was uh, that they put too much uh, faith in him? Well, you know, one thing that was a sort of a good thing in a trial like that, if you're a police officer charged with a crime, you're more like a white collar defendant, right? You have a police union, there'll be resources. So there was actually like a battle of experts. Yeah. You actually heard different experts. Um, and, and there are concerns about medical examiners, you know, with the medical examiner report that came out early on in that right. case, with medical examiners getting biasing information or not the full story or, you know, and, uh, and there are aspects of what medical examiners do, which is sort of like your doctor, like with the diagnosis, 
may not be based on like a blood test or a COVID test. It may be sort of their judgment based on their experience. And it's a lot easier where like if they're kind of wrong and you don't have an infection, then the antibiotics don't work and you call your doctor again. Whereas with death, you can't like, you know, obviously revisit that. No. Uh, And so we have competing medical examiners, but at least there's a battle. And what's terrifying about what happens in regular criminal cases is that there is no battle of the experts. Indigent defendants, they don't get their own expert. There's no second set of eyes on the fingerprint or the cartridge casings or whatever it is, DNA. Uh, it's really rare. Uh, and so the crime lab better be getting it right because no one else is looking. Right. So, but, but back to my question, and, I, and I'm guessing maybe you don't want to answer it. Do, did you find the, you know, I found Dr. Tobin credible. Maybe it's because I wanted him to be credible. I wanted to believe him. On the other hand, I found the defense's arguments and their experts kind of kooky. Um, and again, maybe it's just the prejudice I brought with me to it. Is there any ground for what I was feeling or or are they all not, there's no science there? What, what, what What's the reality no, there, here? No, there certainly is some science there and there are some very concrete things people can say about cause of death. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time carefully watching the uh, testimony. I got to. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, so I, I know less about it than you do. <laughs> okay. All right. Then that's not a fair there question. There are a lot of concerns, though, with hack medical examiners in this country, including yes. because in plenty of coroner systems, you don't even have to be a doctor to be a medical examiner. Right. You run for office. You could be the local mortician. Oh, uh, and uh, and so, you know, the, right around you know, one of the big topics in my book is cognitive bias and how mm-hmm. we expect forensic examiners to be like impartial. They're like on CSI, they're wearing cool clothes and they're in a lab and they're like right. scientists. Right. All they care about is getting it right. Right. Well, in real life, they may be getting calls every day from the detective saying like, this is a police involved shooting or, or like we need this, these prints to match because the guy won't confess or he did confess. So the prints are just the icing on the cake, but yeah, look at the prints. Um, a lot of labs have traditionally had no rules about, you know, why do you need to know about the person's criminal record when you're looking at fingerprints? Why do you need to know whether the person confessed? Um, you know, in a medical examination case, you know, do you need to know that it was a police officer that had the knee on the neck? Or do uh-huh. you just need to be looking at the neck and figuring out what happened to those, you know, muscles and bones or whatnot? There was just a recent study that came out just really during the weeks of this trial where medical examiners around the country were given identical files, but they altered certain facts, including race. And it caused medical examiners to come to different conclusions about cause of death. Wow. And, uh, and, and there've been studies like that done and there was huge outrage. And, you know, I'm friends with two of the authors who, who had all sorts of criticism heaped upon them. How could you do this? But every time you've looked at every, you know, forensic discipline, whether it's fingerprints or DNA, even people are biased. Everyone can be biased in their work. Right. And that's why you set up, you set up firewalls. Uh, that's why we do like blind studies to see whether a COVID vaccine works uh, because of placebo effects or like right. the drug company wants to show that its thing works. And, and, and we don't have that in our crime labs for the most part. Right. That's like uh, the double blind tests where even the, the people, on, the right? people giving the, the tests or giving the experimental drugs for the test don't even know who's got the real one, who's got the placebo. But you're saying that in the crime lab, they, they're privy to all this other uh, information that could color their opinion of what they're finding. Yeah. And that's, wow. uh, it's a, it's a serious problem and there's been very little response to it, but e- even worse, um, at least, you know, whether it's blind or not blind, like with vaccines, like we're doing testing to find mm-hmm. out whether the vaccine works. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some information like early on, there were like antibody tests to find out whether you did COVID. And there was some data like, okay, some of these antibody tests aren't so good. Um, we've never tested these tests. So how often do fingerprint examiners get it right? right. How often now, do they get it right when they compare firearms? Yeah. Um, in yeah. the past, they would just say, oh, no, you know, we're experts. And we, we, this, this stuff has been used in court for 100 years. Based on its use in court for 100 years, we know it's good. Well, um, would we say, you know, um, we'll just use a vaccine because lots of other people seem to be <laughs> thinking happy it's good. With it. Right. No, of course not. But we're, we're fed this steady script, the steady st- diet through yeah. entertainment sources. Um, 
saying that this is science. I mean, I thought they take the fingerprint and they run it through the computer and it all comes up and it says, oh, we've got eight points here. And it just brings it up. That is not that how it works. No, like there's like we put a lot more into like vetting both the ingredients and that presentation and use of toothpaste in this country uh, than like than we do fingerprinting or firearms or these other disciplines. And in recent years, including because scientists have been increasingly just how can you you're calling yourselves crime labs that do science. You're calling it forensic science. Where's the science with science? You need to have statistics. You need to have error rates. You express things with uncertainty. Any measurement you express with uncertainty. If you're measuring your couch with a with a, like a tape measure, if you're anything like I am, there's uncertainty. It's plus or minus a couple of, you know inches. If there's polling, there's uncertainty. Plus right, or minus right. some person. Fingerprint examiners, all these pattern disciplines, they would testify without any uncertainty. It's a match because I say it is. And who, who? Since when do we listen to someone saying that it's a match because they say it is? Well, because without- we've been told that this is an exact science, and you're saying that no, it isn't. And when they've done the studies, they've been finding shockingly high error rates. Wow. Uh, you, you know, I got to tell one of the, on the back of the book, as authors do, you have blurbs. And the first one caught my eye. And you won me over right there. Because Barry Sheck, who is one of the founders of the Innocence Project, uh, wrote the first one. He said, with unique insight and specificity, Brandon Garrett explains the ways forensics can go wrong and shows how to make it right. If you believe that when life and liberty are at stake, accuracy and candor are essential, this book is a must read. This guy spends his his life work is clearing people who've been wrongly convicted, exonerating people who've been um, and, and we have got a lot of people in prisons who have been wrongly convicted. We have, I just, there was a story the other day of a guy who spent like decades in jail and refused to, you know, say what he needed to say to get paroled because he would have had to admit guilt and he wasn't guilty. Um, obviously, we've got problems in our system. You're telling us that they're even deeper than we thought because what we're told is science isn't necessarily so. What about DNA? Yeah, and the numbers are stunning. You know, there are people who've been freed by DNA. Yeah. And, you know, I first started doing work. Actually, I was working with Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, wow. representing innocent people wow. who, were, who were trying to get compensation once they were wrongly convicted and then freed. Um, and many of those people, although DNA was triumphant, like modern technology, modern forensics, CSI set them free. Yeah. I, I later learned as I studied the trial records that most of them were convicted in the first place based on traditional forensics, the, oh, you know, man. hair comparisons and the like. Uh, but some of them are actually wrongly convicted because of botched DNA tests, including where they just, they, you know, the, the biased analyst interpreted it incorrectly because they felt pressure to convict the person. Uh, horrifying cases where they didn't actually test the DNA at all. They just pretended like they did. Oh, God. Uh, cases where also just because of backlogs or delays, they didn't bother to test the DNA. Or sometimes because prosecutors told them, don't bother to test the DNA. We've got a confession. We've got this. Don't test it. And so people had to fight for years to get the DNA tested. Um, And so, you know, like forensics can go wrong in every single direction. It can be you ignore evidence of innocence or it can be you bury evidence of innocence or you just don't test it at all because you're driven towards a result. And so part of what I try to do in the book is unpack all the different ways it can go wrong. Um, There you know, the DNA cases are often cases where there was a sexual assault and you can identify the male who, if it's a stranger sexual assault, DNA can tell you a lot. Unfortunately, one of the real challenges today is that so many crime scenes involve mixtures. Like if you think of all the people who could have touched a counter Mm -hmm. at a convenience store, maybe the robber touched it. Maybe the robber was the last person to touch it, but a lot of people may have touched it too. Or you find a gun at the crime scene and was it just the person who shot the gun who was touching it? Or did the three accomplices also touch it too? How do you, if you don't even know how many people contributed to the mixture, what do you do? There are some algorithms out there that claim to be able to unpack these things. And there are these questions about these black box algorithms where the defense isn't allowed to know how they work. And, you know, I've been talking about the problems of subjective judgment of human examiners. We also have problems that have actually been introduced by technology where we have algorithms where, where we don't know how good they are or the companies really don't have much incentive to to let us dig into what's inside that black box. Well, I see the effect that algorithms have on basically my work um, where, you know, I get booted off of YouTube because, you know, 30 seconds of a song played on a show that aired 
five years ago that one of their robots finds and says, oh, copyright violation. Stuff like that, where where it shouldn't be. Um, uh, a friend of mine had posted a video of her dog playing outside, and there was music playing in the background. She got a copyright violation. I mean, stuff like that. Obviously, this is not as important. Uh, it's not a life and death thing as someone's life who's, you know, being uh, accused of, say, murder. And uh, if if you have a an examiner who thinks you're guilty, they can make it appear so, I guess, is what you're saying. I mean, another way it's kind of salient to all of us, if any of us, have, whether we meant to or not, or whether it's our friends who did it, you know, if we have images of ourselves on Facebook or some other social media, yeah. or frankly, frankly, if you have a driver's license in a state like where I live, like North Carolina, where they share all of their driver's license photos with the FBI database, or if you walk through an airport with your face uncovered, right. then your photos, your photos are in face databases. And we don't know how good those algorithms are um, when researchers have you know, looked at slices of them or versions of them, they found real error rates, um, higher error rates if you're, if you're black. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the FBI has said, well, you know, we haven't error tested this thing, but we just use it to generate leads. And so we're not actually doing hits. And so we don't have to say how often we do false hits or, or false misses or whatever. It's just for agencies to use, you know, to get leads. But obviously, we all know that if you get a lead on a suspect, that could turn into an arrest. That could turn into turn into a a death. That can turn into a cop shooting someone who shouldn't be shot. And I thought I remembered reading about a similar case like this, but it could have been from some television show too. That's where you know reality and and fiction blur. Um, Speaking of the blurring, Brandon Garrett, uh, we were talking, me and the listeners, before you came on, about. For instance, the TV show Dexter. Do you ever see that? You, you never seen Dexter? Uh, oh, man. No, you need. I because I'm watching these work related shows. <laughs> I got you. Well, it, this kind of is because here's the story about Dexter. It's a show that was on Showtime years ago, but they're bringing it back. And Dexter was a blood spatter expert with the Miami Metro Police Department. And. Dexter was also a serial killer, but he was a serial killer with a conscience and he would only kill people that the police could not convict who he knew were really bad guys. And so that's who he went after. But he was always able to solve the crime because he's the blood spatter analyst and where none of the other police could solve it. He could. Um, This is all it's just all fiction, but but it's presented to us in such a way that uh, we think it's got to be real. Um, and, and you're saying we need a whole new glossary here. We need a new way to educate people on what, uh, science is capable of, what, what crime labs are capable of, what police forces are capable of. Am I overstating that? No. And, and there's some good news here. I mean, I do, I do think like if we expect police to solve the most serious crimes, well, we shouldn't be expecting the police to do that. We need more funding for real scientists and for crime labs to do the work, whether it's collecting this stuff at the crime scene without contaminating it mm-hmm. uh, or doing the analysis. It should be done in the lab and in a scientific way. But we also need quality control. Like no one would get a strep test even at a hospital that just said, trust us, we've been a hospital for 100 years. <laughs> and uh, uh, we want to know, like we, get, we have information, like you go on websites and see what happens when there are site inspections and audits of hospitals. And, you know, they do blind testing to find out how often strep tests are botched or not. Um, we need to know how good someone is before they call themselves an expert in court. And we can do that. It's not hard to do. You do spot checking like with anything. Right. Um, you can test one in a thousand cases or, you know, I mean, the whole DC lab had now is, well, it's, it's shut down really. It's, a, it's accreditation is suspended. The lab head just resigned wow. all because of one spot check. There was a firearms case where there was a concern that the U S attorney's office had the prosecutors had the concern because it was a, there's a firearms examiner that had, had, had failed something on a proficiency test. And those tests are really easy. Uh, and so they, what they did was they gave the firearms evidence to two outside examiners and they said, no, these don't match. It, they, it was a spot test of one, oh one case. And, and the lab was like, oh, well, you know, now we're changing our conclusions. Now we say the evidence is inconclusive. We can't say whether it's a hit or a miss. And they're like, wait a minute, you're going to manipulate your conclusions because someone from the outside looks at it. 
And there's a question about whether that constituted a false report and all these, it all sort of spun out, but it raises questions about, well, how often did you change results in the past because you didn't like them? And, uh, and it was because of one spot check and it raises the question, well, okay, how many other labs are, you know, like the 70,000 or more cases being reopened in Massachusetts because two entire drug labs were, were wholly, you know, problematic in terms of analysts using drugs or just not doing the tests or not cleaning the equipment. They'd just been doing a spot test every once in a while. They would have caught that. And how many other labs would have caught these huge, huge problems if they were actually testing their work? Right. So I, I posed a question earlier uh, because of the events of today. We had another mass shooting, this one in San Jose. Thankfully, the shooter took himself out at the end. So saved us a lot of time, energy, money. Uh, he should have just shot himself first and, you know, saved the lives of those eight people that he killed. But sometimes the shooters don't kill themselves. And sometimes they, um, you know, in Vegas, thankfully, he's dead too. But from what I can tell, they've never been able to come up with much about a motive or what, what made this guy do this. Isn't that what law enforcement is supposed to be able to do? Shouldn't the murder of 50 some odd people and the injury of hundreds um, uh Give us, shouldn't we be able to get some answers here from our crack, you know, great law enforcement in this country? Is, is, there, is there a problem here that we don't know more about what, what made this guy go nuts like this? I will say in law enforcement's defense that it is hard to, to, to unpack that information. Sure. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of murders that are never cleared. I know. We have no idea who the person who committed it was. And you think about all the shootings that go uninvestigated, and it may be kind of moral luck that the teenager missed as opposed to hitting someone. Like, right. that's someone who you need to find. Um, it, it, there are a lot of questions about the fundamental structure of policing in this country, right? There's like 30 million people stopped for traffic stops. Yeah. And like, do we need police to be, it raises a lot of money for police, for them to be doing so much traffic enforcement. No. We need these, like more detectives to look at really serious crimes. But then again, it's not like you can just shift people over from traffic no. and promote them to detectives. It's a, it's a, a challenge to, to hire more really highly qualified people. And we need more scientists, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but that's about getting, bringing in more highly qualified people. We don't need, you know, 30 million people a year stopped for traffic stops, which sometimes escalate into much more serious encounters, which make no sense for the broken taillight or whatever the reason. No, was. not at all. And and I and and some suggest, and I would agree that you don't need armed police officers doing traffic stops either. You can have a traffic unit that only deals with that, and you can have, you know, serious uh, cops who are supposed to be on the beat for violent crime doing that. Mm-hmm. Not- Even more ridiculous, we've had armed forensic scientists who basically they, they had no bones about the fact that I'm, I mean, I think of myself as a cop. Okay. I'm a cop with a lab coat, but here's my gun. And, you know, I'm here. I'm here to, to, to show you why the guy did it. Oh, God. Uh, sort of like no secret that they were on the side of law enforcement. And that's, and, you know, I'm thinking of a West Virginia analyst who, you know, multiple wrongful convictions came out of his work. But uh, sometimes they, that bias is just on the sleeve of the crime lab staffer, and that's not something we should tolerate. Right. The United States, I believe, has more incarcerated people per capita than anywhere else in the world. I, I might be wrong on that, but it's my impression anyway. How many of our or what percentage would you say are people who have been wrongly convicted because of bad science, bad forensics? Really don't know. No. I mean, I, you know, in the cases that have come to light because of DNA testing, mm-hmm. you know, about half of those cases, even though there was, you know, DNA testing that later did a really good thing and freed them, about half of those cases, there were serious problems with the forensics, whether, you know, concealing evidence of innocence or overstating evidence of guilt or saying things that weren't supported by science. So a lot of those cases involved bad forensics. Um, and so, but we have no idea, you know, so many people plead guilty in this country. That's part of the problem with the tens of thousands of cases, drug cases in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Uh, people pleaded guilty years ago. They already, you know, paid fines, lost their housing, spent time in jail. Uh, so, and they did that because uh, they were told you'll you'll have a lighter sentence, you'll be eligible for parole. Plead guilty, even if yeah. you're innocent. Which, yeah, is- oh, yeah, no, and and many of you know the innocent people that I've talked to and that I've written about. Um, including, you know, in, in this autopsy of a crime lab book, like 
They knew that the forensics were wrong. They knew that they weren't there. They knew they didn't leave the bite mark or the, the fingerprint. Um, and they were told by their defense lawyer, look, there's a really attractive plea here. If you take this to trial, um, they took it to trial because they're like, well, I just couldn't plead guilty to something I did. But they insisted on principle. And because of that, they got hit with sentences that were so long that only decades later when DNA testing came along, were they able to earn their freedom? Uh, so they, you know, they did, uh, I mean, how many of us would do that? Insist on moral principle. I will not, I was not raised to, to, to lie. I will not plead guilty to a crime I did not commit and spend 30 years in jail as a result. Right. And, but, but they also don't give you a guarantee. Oh, cop to it and you'll get out in five. Um, you don't know. You could cop to it and say, "All right, you pleaded guilty. You're, you're you know, you're you're being put to death." I, it's hard. You can't trust anybody. Uh, it, if to be caught up in the legal system and have some of these so-called experts out for you is a bad thing. I remember years ago. I, I lived in New York for many years, and I don't even remember what the case was, but I remember the name of the medical examiner who became sort of a celebrity, and then he was, uh, uh, um, a uh, 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 Michael Baden. Right. He was a good guy and then he wasn't a good guy. And all these years later, I remember his name. I don't remember what the case was and I don't remember why. I remember that it was controversial. Um, is, does this happen in, in all over the place? Like the medical examiner is all of a sudden like the star witness. So he's famous and has a reputation. What about Michael Baden? I heard his name bandied about recently. Is he still alive? I'm trying to remember. I think he actually did a... Uh like a follow-up medical examination in the Floyd case. Oh, raised, I think I raised, think his name was in relation to the Floyd and, case. And raised, and raised questions, actually, all, along the lines of what we were talking about earlier, about whether the original examination was accurate and looked carefully enough at the cause of death. But I I haven't read any right. of the report. And, and then with the Floyd case, I mean, part of the thing, you mentioned the original medical examiner for, I think it's Hennepin County, um, found that, what? Sonny Von Bulow. Uh, was the case that Michael Baden was on, and he consulted on the OJ case. My husband is my, you know, my my brain trust. Who, when I get a brain fart, he fills me in. Anyway, but the, you know, the, the, you mentioned the the medical examiner who did the original autopsy in Minnesota of George Floyd said found differently than what the what the prosecution was saying. But on the stand, it sounded like he came around and basically backed up their story. So it sounds like he was swayed by everyone else's evidence, maybe. I don't know. It just shows that you really can't trust it. So uh, as, we're, also, you know, as a lawyer, like, you know, I want to prepare my expert. Yeah. Right? I, want to, right. I, I want to go over their testimony, make it smoother, emphasize the points that I think are going to be really compelling to the jury. Any witness, you know, lawyers are prepping them in a way that that is inherently misleading. They're putting on a show. Hopefully, at least if you have experts on both sides, there's a clash and the jury has something to assess. But really, as scientists, it shouldn't be about doing the most you can for your side. You should be presenting evidence carefully based on the uncertainty, based on the limitations of your discipline. And for so long, these forensic scientists, no rules. Say what you want. Okay, so in the minute we have left... Are there good labs? Are there do, do 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 does science have the answers to these questions, or do we are we putting too much trust in a technology that's not quite there yet? Yeah, um, there are good labs. There have been some really important strides in recent years. I talk about the Houston Forensic Science Center, which is entirely shut down because of massive, massive problems over a decade ago. Now it's an independent lab, hmm. and they do kind of what I'm talking about. They do blind testing, so five percent of all the cases they work on are a test where there's error checking. You can find out whether they got it right or wrong. And so hopefully catch mistakes in cases that aren't real cases where someone could go to you know, prison for something they didn't do. Right. And that, that's what every lab should be doing. They should be constantly checking quality because you know, we all make mistakes. You catch the mistakes. You're upfront that there is error. We measure it. We express uncertainty and we fix problems. That's, that's the culture of quality. And that's, that's what we want from any scientific institution, whether it's you know, in a hospital or a crime lab. But in crime labs, this is a new thing. Definitely. Uh, Brandon L. Garrett, the book is Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. I would guess a lot of uh, incarcerated people might be reading your book thinking, all right, now I can have an appeal here. <laughs> There's stuff I can use. And and certainly the, the fact that the Innocence Project exists shows, you know, the need for uh, 
this information to get out there. Brandon, thank you so much. This was fascinating. I really appreciate you joining us oh, today. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, too. you, thank you so show. much. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, I will watch Dexter, you know, when it comes back with a different eye, <laughs> a little more um, uh, incredible, perhaps. I don't know. All right. That's it for us. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Actually, I will leave you with the news. All right. Um, And I will also (laughs) see you tomorrow. Uh, Nothing wants to work right today. Here we go. Here's what's news. I read the news today. Oh, boy. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. The Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, has convened a grand jury to consider evidence gathered in a criminal investigation into Donald Trump and executives at the Trump Organization. They've been investigating for more than two years whether the company misled lenders and insurance companies about the value of properties and whether they paid appropriate taxes or not. The move suggested that Vance, who's retiring and not running for a fourth term, was close to seeking charges. The investigation included a fight for access to Trump's tax records, which he ultimately won at the Supreme Court. They also examined Trump's business dealings before he was president, including whether his company inflated the value of properties to get better loans and undervalued them to lower its taxes. Trump, in typical fashion, responded to the news with an angry blog post calling the seating of the grand jury, quote, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in American history. That's getting kind of old, isn't it? The Senate is scrambling to get some work done before they leave for a Memorial Day recess on Friday. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Tuesday began the process of bringing a vote to the floor on the House-passed bill to create a commission probing the January 6th attack on the Capitol. A key procedural vote is now slated for Thursday when senators will cast a vote on whether to advance the legislation. But it's looking near certain to fail as Republicans will filibuster and there don't appear to be 10 who will vote with the Democrats. So far, only Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney have indicated they'd support the legislation, which, by the way, was supported by 35 House Republicans. Susan Collins and Rob Portman have said they'd like to see some changes in the bill and then maybe they'd vote for it. But other than those, there aren't a lot of Republican votes in play. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been vocally opposed to the commission, almost admitting that it's because of the effect it would have on the 2022 elections. The creation of a January 6th commission is just one deal McConnell and company are blocking. Another is the infrastructure package. The White House started with a $2.3 trillion proposal. Biden then trimmed it to $1.7 trillion, but that was still over a trillion more than the Republicans were offering. On Monday, CNN reports, Biden informed the Republicans that he'd be willing to accept an infrastructure package of around one trillion. So Senate Republicans are now reportedly preparing a one trillion dollar infrastructure counteroffer that they'll reveal on Thursday. Stay tuned. Say it isn't so, Joe. Come on, man. The White House has reportedly removed several key provisions from the administration's upcoming budget plan, one of which was a student debt forgiveness proposal that progressives say is already months overdue. The Washington Post reporting Friday that the White House also removed several proposals that Joe Biden had promised to address on the campaign trail, like reducing the cost of prescription drugs and raising the estate tax. It took long enough, but the outcome was worth the wait. The Senate on Tuesday confirmed civil rights lawyer Kristen Clark to lead the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Clark will be the first woman of color, confirmed to the Post, which former Attorney General Eric Holder described as the DOJ's crown jewel. The vote was a squeaker, 51 to 48, with Susan Collins of Maine being the only Republican to join the Democrats in support of Clark. Democrats praised Clark, saying her experience made her the best person to lead the Biden administration's enforcement of civil rights laws and investigations of police abuses. Republicans fought the confirmation, saying that Clark was too liberal, partisan, and hostile towards police, citing an op-ed she wrote describing her prosecution of killings by police. And it was fitting 
that Clark was confirmed on Tuesday, the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. The unarmed black man, murdered by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who knelt on his neck for over nine minutes. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris met with George Floyd's family at the White House on Tuesday. Floyd's death obviously sparked widespread protests against racism and police brutality. Ceremonies were held around the country to honor him while Floyd's family members were in D.C., His brother, Philonese Floyd, said the family hoped for progress toward passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which includes reforms such as banning racial profiling. The issue holding up the passage of that bill is the question of qualified immunity, which protects government officials, in this case police officers, from civil liability for constitutional violations. Yeah, it's a big deal. George is in the news again. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp on Tuesday signed an executive order making Georgia the latest Republican-led state to restrict the use of vaccine passports. In a statement, Kemp said, quote, while I continue to urge all Georgians to get vaccinated so we continue our momentum of putting the COVID-19 pandemic in the rear view, vaccination is a personal decision between each citizen and a medical professional, not the state government. This order applies to state agencies, service providers, and properties, including schools and prisons, but not to private businesses or organizations. By the way, as of Tuesday, 50% of adult Americans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. And on May 24th, the seven-day average of new cases was the lowest it's been at any point since last June. But we're reminded that those numbers are driven by the vaccinated part of the population. Among those who are not vaccinated, the rate of the disease and death is estimated to be as high as it was in late January. Partisan politics are getting uglier than normal in Arizona, where the appropriately nicknamed fraudit is still allegedly recounting ballots for a third or is it a fourth time? On Tuesday morning, though, the Arizona House Appropriations Committee stripped Arizona's Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, of her ability to defend election lawsuits, giving the power exclusively to the Republican Attorney General. The Senate Appropriations Committee quickly passed the same changes. This provision, now part of the full budget proposal, that will be voted on later this week. By the way, that provision limiting the powers of the Secretary of State expires at the end of Katie Hobbs' term on January 2nd, 2023. Well, a date's been set. President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin will both attend a high-stakes summit in Switzerland next month, marking the first face-to-face meeting between the leaders and Biden's first international trip since taking office. The White House says the leaders will discuss restoring, quote, predictability and stability to U.S.-Russia relations. Biden will also address Ukraine and Belarus, two areas of regional political conflict. Former Senator John Warner of Virginia died Tuesday evening at the age of 94 from heart failure. The World War II and Korean War veteran served three decades in the Senate after a stint as Secretary of the Navy, And yes, he was for a time married to Elizabeth Taylor. And it appears to be official. Amazon agrees to buy MGM. Seriously, it's a landmark marriage of tech and Hollywood. Amazon will buy MGM's parent company, MGM Holdings, for $8.45 billion. The deal for the studio the second priciest in Amazon's history, they paid more for Whole Foods, gives Amazon the rights to a huge library of classic film properties in its bid to become a dominant entertainment player. And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work one, and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com, and please click on that Donate button.